Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. It is time for a classic episode. This episode originally published on May 14th, 2014. It is titled, The Worst Video Games of All Time, parentheses, update, close parentheses. Um, Obviously, since 2014, we've had a few more contenders. I know some people would probably put Cyberpunk 2077 way up there. Uh, Depending on your point of view, there, there are defenders of that game who say that there's a very good game there that was marred by a rushed release. Um, And there are others who disagree with that assessment entirely. So I'm sure I will have to do yet another update. So maybe at one point I'll do the worst video games of all time updated update. But for now, let's listen to this classic episode from 2014. Enjoy. So there's been this longstanding rumor uh, elevated to almost myth status in the video game industry that that Atari, while it was struggling, dumped thousands of video games in this New Mexico landfill. Um, the The New York Times even ran a short piece on it in September of 1983. And it's, it's a short piece. So I'm just going to read it out because it's a uh, really explains the story and is super indicative of what the industry was doing at the time. So here we go. With the video game business gone sour, some manufacturers have been dumping their excess game cartridges on the market at depressed prices. Now Atari Inc., the leading video game manufacturer, has taken dumping one step further. The company has dumped 14 truckloads of discarded game cartridges and other computer equipment at the city landfill in Alamogordo, New Mexico. Guards kept reporters and spectators away from the area yesterday as workers poured concrete over the dumped merchandise. An Atari spokesman said the equipment came from Atari's plant in El Paso, Texas, which was used to make video game cartridges, but has now been converted to recycling scrap. Atari lost $310.5 million in the second quarter, largely because of a sharp drop in video game sales. That's, yeah, $310.5 million in a quarter. In a quarter. Yeah, that's, uh, not, that's not a yearly loss. So, yeah, as you can see, this was a huge deal for Atari. And, um, you know, there are a lot of different things that went into this. Uh, we've covered it before. But just as a quick kind of refresher, uh, the things that, that led to this decision involved too many games on the market, too many consoles on the market. So you had you had way too much product out there. Uh, and way too many poor video games that had been kind of scrapped together really quickly. Right. And then, and then with the uh, the E.T. cartridge in particular, which is often cited as not only the worst video game of all time, but also the reason for the video game crash. That's that's a little too simplistic, but it yeah, did, that's, that's overstating things. It's a big contributor because that license cost millions of dollars to Atari, and they produced millions of cartridges, something like five million copies of this game, and they didn't sell out at all. They at had all. they had millions left over, so you just had a, a no win scenario. I mean, no one wanted the cartridges. They kept getting marked down and down and down in, in the discount bins at your local toy stores. I mean, I remember these days because I had an Atari 2600. I had E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Um, so, <laughs> oh, wow. So you played it? Oh, yeah. Oh, I've never played it. No, I had the two games that are constantly referred to as being the ones that led to the video game crash were the the licensed versions of Pac-Man and uh, E.T. the Extraterrestrial on the Atari 2600. I had both of those. Wow. So I can tell you they both were terrible games. <laughs> They were not good representations of their licenses, and uh, and so they both really did contribute. So, uh, anyway, we had this big myth about 
the I you know this huge dumping ground and there was conflicting information for the longest time. Like, is it actually out there or is it is that just urban legend? Well, and since concrete had been poured, no one was really sure. Yeah, it made me think for a while that maybe the guy who made that decision at Atari used to work for the mafia. <laughs> I want it dead. I want it buried in the ground. I want a concrete foundation poured over it. That's how it how it goes off in my head anyway. I mean, maybe he just really hated it that much. But yeah, we ended up uh, discovering very recently, as of the recording of this podcast, as it turns out, that uh, there was truth to the myth. Yeah, myth confirmed. Okay, so on April 26th of 2014, uh, hundreds of old Atari games, including the infamously terrible E.T., were were found in this landfill in New Mexico. Uh, the, the Dig was part of a documentary series. It's being done by director Zach Penn in affiliation with a couple media companies, Fuel Entertainment and Lightbox Entertainment, along with Microsoft's xbox entertainment studios yeah <laughs> what's what's funny is that uh major nelson who is part of xbox live he's, mm-hmm. he's like one of the kind of a community liaison type guy uh so a lot of information from microsoft comes through him and then is communicated to the fans he was actually on the dig site too and uh i'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second when we get to the super silly part of the story i'm, I'm not sure which part is, that's the, is super that's, silly. Yeah, there's so many. But this one in particular, because it all has to do with the way the man wears a construction hat, a hard oh, hat. Ah, uh, okay. All right. So, so so some interesting, interesting little factoids around this dig. The the AP was out there and they were talking to folks. Um, and, and according to them, James Heller, a former Atari manager who's also on site for the dig at the invitation of the production team, um, said, uh, James Heller said that he was charged with finding a cheap way of disposing for... 728,000 game cartridges. That's that's a lot of cartridges. That's more than I had by by a long shot. Uh, and he said that after a few local kids scavenged games um, and he started getting calls from the media about it, that's when he decided to pour the concrete. Right, because otherwise you have you have a recipe for disaster and that kids could be coming out to a landfill, get hurt. Right, right, and they right. Have lawsuits. Yeah, no, no one wants E.T. on top of being the worst game ever to be the most deadly game right, ever. That's to have not... caused like tetanus and <laughs> things like that. Yeah, that would have been a terrible, terrible uh, PR nightmare. Yeah, he he's also said that he wasn't aware that there was any kind of controversy about it and that he's never come out on the record about it because no one ever asked him. Huh. It's clearly someone who does not go to the big video game forums. Yeah, he's clearly the, not yeah. from the Internet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so so the city that houses the landfill is giving up to 250 of the cartridges to the team and will be selling the rest. So if you would like your own, you can get some real New Mexico <laughs> dirt packed in with your your various cartridges they're they're apparently still playable some of them i mean some of them are crushed yeah i know that when they first found it they tested one out almost immediately and then said we're not going to tell you whether or not it worked we're going to save that for the documentary Uh, but 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 these are these are hard hard hardwired cartridges i mean mm -hmm. they're not they're not optical discs or anything like that so as long as you haven't had too much detritus get into the (laughs) cartridge right which we all know how to solve that problem yeah you're just blowing it yeah. And then you're good. Yeah. As long as that's not the case, then it should work. And I understand that there was another person uh, who was talked to about this whole thing. A, a, a man who may, you you might say, was burdened with terrible responsibility. <laughs> uh, so the AP for, for this article that they did also called E.T.'s game designer, one Howard Scott Warshaw, 
about the entire debacle. Um, and he said that he actually doesn't mind his game being called the worst game ever. He said that he was only given five weeks to design, write, and test this game after legal matters held it up in production of for getting that license. And the 1983 holiday shopping deadlines began looming. He he said furthermore that it's, and I quote, a tremendous honor that, you know, e- even though it's the worst video game ever, that's still being talked about. <laughs> well, he also was the guy who made the biggest selling original game for Atari, which was Yar's Revenge. Uh, so... Huh. Yar's Revenge was a kind of crazy little game where uh, it's almost impossible to explain. Back then, video games were not nearly as simple in a way. Like, even though the, the, the graphics were simple and the gameplay was simple, the concepts were really high concept, crazy things. Yeah. And these days, you know, when you see video games, they tend to be variations on very similar themes. Like, it's a sandbox game like Grand Theft Auto or the Saints Row series, or it's a racing game, or it's a gun game. Like, those are all... First-person shooter, an adventure, you know. Right, right, right. right. Back in the days of the early arcades, you'd be like, well, first, you play as a donkey who's (laughs) out delivering pizzas. And you're like, what? But that was normal. So anyway, Yars Revenge, hard to explain it easily. But um, uh, anyway, one of the most popular games of Atari... Ever. So it's kind of interesting that the same guy was behind both titles. Wow. Um, but yeah. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, we're going to, we're going to have a nice little flashback in a minute. But before we do that, uh, something else I think is really entertaining is that there's some conspiracy theories around this. Like there were some things popping up on the internet suggesting that perhaps this whole dig was a manufactured story. And in fact, no one had gone to New Mexico and no one had actually found the cartridges because they were never really put there in the first place. And the whole thing is just a complete cover up. Yeah, there's like Atari truthers now. This is great. Yeah. So uh, and there was a, a picture of Major Nelson. This is what I was referring to earlier in the podcast, who was at the site and wearing a hard hat. Mm-hmm. And the hard hat, you know, sat pretty high up on his head, which led some people to say, oh, it's been photoshopped on top of him. He was clearly this was a picture of Major Nelson that's been placed so that it's on a desert background. And he's got this hard hat photoshopped on because it's not saying, flat, uh, you know, snug against his head. But here's the thing about hard hats. They actually have like a little kind of harness that sits on your head, and they're raised up over the harness so that if something does impact the hard hat, there's that shock there's zone. There's a shock zone, right. Yeah, so it doesn't kill you. You see, just having something it's hard... It's part of the engineering, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't help you if you're wearing something hard on your head if the force hitting it is still enough to, to cause you injury. So, uh, it's, you know, it may have been that the little harness part was a little small for, for Major Nelson's, uh, noggin. I don't know, but. I don't know him personally. Yeah, it doesn't. I'm not, I'm not going to call him a fathead. No, neither am I. But, uh, but it does mean that I think some people mistakenly, uh, either mistakenly or perhaps jokingly, it could have been that they were joking about it being, uh, photoshopped and then other and it people got took blown it out seriously. Of proportion yeah. in some way. I mean, yeah. You um, know how the internet is. Oh, sure, sure. And also, uh, some of the very first photos that came out of the dig site, um, were taken on, you know, low quality cell phones. And I think that everyone, I mean, I mean, I was reluctant to believe the story until I clicked a few links through and really checked around about it because. Sure. I was like, oh, that's fake. Yeah. I mean, well, there's so many stories. But I assume that everything on is fake on the internet. <laughs> Except that how stuff works, where everything is amazing. Precisely. Uh, but yeah, no, it, no, I totally understand what you where you're coming from on that one. So we wanted to take this opportunity to actually have a little look back on an episode that uh, that was recorded years ago, back in 2011. Uh, yeah. So, so of course, Chris Paulette is is going to be 
joining us from the vaults of history. Right. So today. so this is this is what some people would call a rerun because we wanted to talk about the discussion that kind of led into this whole thing. Uh, when we asked our listeners, this was a crowdsourced episode, which we haven't really we haven't done many of those. We've asked for listener mail and gotten responses and we've done some episodes based upon suggestions. But this was purely crowdsourced where I put out the question, what's the worst video game of all time? And then we had our listeners write in and we tabulated all the votes and it was it was wide open. And this is the result. Uh, and spoiler alert, the video game that we just talked about being dug up in the desert ends up being number one. <laughs> so uh, but it's an entertaining episode. Listen to it and we'll have a little bit more to talk about once the episode's over with some other kind of bad video game wrap up. So enjoy. So, uh, hey, guys, uh, you know, you might remember that uh, Chris and I wanted to do a, a, a crowdsourced episode where we asked our listeners to submit to us the worst video game of all time. And uh, we didn't give any real parameters about that. We said it could be on any platform. It just had to be a video game. And uh, because of that, it meant that our listeners could literally uh, uh, nominate any game ever made. So it's a miracle at all that we had enough votes for any particular title to have this this podcast. But we actually have the top ten, or perhaps bottom ten, worst <laughs> video games, uh, as voted on by you, the listener. So please keep in mind, this is not the opinions of Jonathan and Chris, although maybe we'll talk about some of the bad games we've played in the past, too. This isn't our opinion. This is your opinion. We're just reporting it. Yeah. Well, I I have to say that uh, one one person did write in and ask us why we would bother recording an episode on this, and uh, the simple answer is because it's fun. Yeah, for us, this was actually really a lot of fun. Uh, so. It was a lot of work because we had to collect votes from multiple sources. We co- collected votes from email, Facebook, Twitter, and people left votes on my Google Plus account too. So. Um, I actually did separate out all the votes in a big spreadsheet, so I knew how many votes came in from which uh, 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 particular source, and that that actually was kind of interesting too, just to see you know what our listeners prefer to use in order to to get information to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was pretty fascinating. That was not my intent, by the way. When I came, I came up with this idea on the spur of the moment and sprung it on Chris just before we started recording, and Chris was like. Do I have to? Do I have to record all the votes? I said no. He says, "All right, let's do it." <laughs> so you know, I'm easy like that. Let's uh, let's start off with uh, uh, what would be number ten, but actually it was a tie for ninth place. So the first two games we're going to talk about received the same number of votes, and the first one that we we're going to talk about is Dragon's Lair, the arcade game specifically. Hmm. So hmm. for those of you who. Uh, who missed out on the early 80s and the great arcade uh, culture of the early 80s. You may not be too familiar with this game, but it was groundbreaking. Yeah, it, uh, it was. was. It was a, a an innovative way of presenting a video game that had not been attempted before Dragon's Lair. Yep. Yeah. Previously, we were talking about the the different well the difference in in vector and raster graphics and and you know there was there were blocky graphics for the most part at yeah. the time and they had um, limited animation limited sound yeah um, but uh, 
but Dragon's Lair actually featured uh, animation from one of the industry giant animators, Don Bluth. Yeah, former Disney animator. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, who has gone on to, you know, with his own company to do many, many other titles. In fact, I, I have a Don Bluth title on my iPad. Yeah, which one? The new version of Tapper. Oh, I did. Features know. Don Bluth artwork. See, because uh, he also, you may know some of his work from from movies like uh, uh, the Secrets of the Secret of Nim. Yes, and um, the Land Before Time series. Land Before Time it was uh, was it uh, the Fievel movies too? Yes, um, those were Don Bluth films. Mm-hmm. So somewhere out there. Yes, thank you. So Dragon's Lair was uh, featured animation from Don Bluth, and it was published by Cinematronics. Yeah, yeah, but 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 how you might yeah, say exactly is like, this great leap in graphics and sound because the sound was awesome too. How yeah, how is that possible? Because you know you're looking at other games like Donkey Kong, which you know I loved Donkey Kong, but you would not yeah. call the graphics uh, advanced or state of the art. Well, for the time they were, but not now. But you, I yeah, mean, but Dragon's Lair now to Dragon's still Lair looks is crazy. Yeah, well they. They accomplished this by using the LaserDisc video format. Which we've talked about before. So the entire game was on LaserDisc, and uh, there was an actual LaserDisc player inside the cabinet of this arcade game. Now, the fact that there, it was on LaserDisc was both its, its biggest strength and its biggest weakness. Yes. The weakness is that you couldn't create too much interactivity for the player and the game. Uh, the... You know, you couldn't have complete control over the main character who, do you remember the guy's name? Dirk the Daring? Yes. And he was rescuing uh, Princess Daphne Mm -hmm. from a dragon named Singe. And so you, you couldn't just control Dirk the Daring. You couldn't just make him run around and jump and stuff. Instead, what you would do is you would initiate a video sequence because again this is recorded on laserdisc there's only so many variations of dirk's movements that can be recorded on a single laserdisc yeah so what your input into the arcade machine would translate to is was that the correct button to press or direction on the joystick to push in order to trigger the next sequence to further the storyline yeah <clears throat> so you for example you might be uh, having to jump and you did have to jump at one point. And if you, you know, move up, that might be the right thing to do. If you move left, you die. Right. If you do nothing, you, you die. die. If you if you push the sword button, you die. If yes. you push yeah. So in other words, there'd be one correct response to a particular moment in the story. And sometimes yes. uh, there'd be like a little flash that would indicate this is when you do something. So for a lot of the game you're you're just watching. Yes. You're just you're you're watching a movie and then occasionally in the movie there's a moment where you have a chance to put in an input and if you put in the wrong one the movie's over. And so that was probably what caused a lot of people to vote for Dragon's Lair is that it almost feels like less of a game and more of a film. And it's just a film that you don't get to see the end of it unless you happen to shift in your seat at just the right moment mm-hmm. so the film will continue. And also I would like to point out this was one of the first games I can remember that cost 2 credits or 50 cents to play. Yep, yep. And also remember that a lot of them had two monitors because mm. they were so popular that people would try and gather and cram around the the uh, system because if someone knew how to play it, if someone had memorized the sequence of movements they had to do to get through a particular part of the game, 
you know, most people didn't have the time or energy or change to learn all that. So they, they just like to watch the, the, the game because, again, it was like a movie. Uh, I saw a lot of arcades that would put a second monitor that was mounted on the top of the cabinet so that you could see what was going on without having to be right up on whoever's playing the game. So anyway, that was uh, tied for ninth place. Uh, and the other one was an, an, a game on the Nintendo Entertainment System, mm-hmm. which was Back to the Future. And I have never played this because I didn't own an NES. I've, but from what I read, we're going from beautiful graphics to and, and, not po- so beautiful. and sort of poor gameplay to horrible graphics and poor, and poor gameplay. gameplay. Yeah, yeah. Back to the Future is just one example of a licensed title. And by licensed, I mean it's something that already existed that a video game publisher uh, purchases a license from the license owner to be able to create a game based on that. And as far as Back to the Future goes, the the basis was really pretty uh, difficult to spot, especially in that first stage. Like in the very first stage, you are uh, going down a street. And the way the view is, it's an over-the-head view. Um, the street is laid out so that the top of the screen is where you're, you're headed to. The bottom of the screen is where you are. And you're moving your, your character around, Marty McFly. You're moving Marty McFly down the street. You're trying to avoid enemies and pick up little alarm clocks. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's only by picking up enough alarm clocks that you're allowed to move to the next stage. And so you're also, you also have a timer. So if you don't pick up enough alarm clocks within the time limit, then you lose. If you get hit by an enemy, you lose. If you run into an obstacle, you lose. Um, you would eventually be able to pick up a bowling ball, which would let you shoot enemies. Cause of course you remember that great scene in Back to the Future where Marty McFly picked up a bowling ball and then shot someone with it. Um, who can forget that scene that never happened? Uh, and then you could also get, a skateboard, which at least that was featured in the film. Yeah. But with a skateboard, what that would mean is that you would move through the, the, <laughs> you would move through the level faster, which meant the poor gameplay became excruciatingly poor gameplay because you're going so fast you can't even react. Um, and then if you got through that, you would hit a mini game. Mm-hmm. And some of the mini games included a diner stage where you're behind a counter and Biff and his bullies are coming in after you and you have to throw milkshakes at them to stop them. But it was really hard to line up your character so that you were throwing the milkshake at the right plane in order to hit the enemy. Mm-hmm. Like the enemy's coming at you from the left side of the screen. You're on the right side of the screen. You've got a bar between you and the enemy. You just have to figure out exactly where like vertically you need to align your Yourself, and you you'd be like, oh, that's clearly that's it. That's that's the sweet spot. And you push the button, and the milkshake flies like three feet over the, the bully's head, and he reaches the the bar and throws you against the wall. Um, it was a little rough. And then there was another stage where you had to block kisses that were sent to you from Lorraine because you're playing Marty McFly. Lorraine right. is Marty's mother. Right. You know, he's back in time, and he's met the teenage version of his mom. And uh, so you would have to block her kisses to you. And then there was another one where you had to position a guitar just right so that you were playing uh, music so that Lorraine and George, your your mom and dad, mm-hmm. would actually kiss. And then the very final stage involved driving the DeLorean, the time travel device, through the street at night, dodging enemies, dodging obstacles, trying to get up to 88 miles per hour. Um, it looked awful. Oh, and Bob Gale, who was a screenwriter for Back to the Future, called mm-hmm. it one of the worst games ever made. Heavy. Yeah. 
Yeah. Why do people keep saying that? Is there some problem with gravity in the future? <laughs> so that moves us up to our eighth worst game. Do you want to unveil what this one is? Well, it, it certainly has a tough row to hoe. Yes, it does. But it is extremely popular. It's uh, something you may have seen once or twice on Facebook, at least. Once or twice a minute on Facebook. <laughs> Only if you follow uh, people who play this. And how could you not? It's Farmville. From Zynga. Yes. Now, Farmville's had a lot of criticism directed toward it. Uh, it's one of those games that's uh, uh, it's a freemium game. Yes, it and, is. And that means that you can play the game for free, but if you want to have the most advantageous stuff in the game, you have to pay real money to get it. Um, and so, which is a perfectly valid business plan. You know, yeah. there's no re- I'm not, I don't want to say that that's a bad thing to do. I mean, people should be compensated for the work they do in order for them to make more work. Otherwise, no one has any incentive to do anything, you know? Well, you know, it's it's got millions of fans. Yes. Um, something like, I, I once heard a statistic that something like 10% of all people who use Facebook play this. Mm-hmm. And, and I have. So you know, I've played, I've played it in some of the other Zynga games. But I don't, it's funny though, I don't think of it as a game. I think of it as more of a toy because there's no objective that you're trying to accomplish to win the game. Yeah. Basically, you're trying to, if you've never seen or, or played it, um, the, the point is to grow your farm. So, you know, at, at some point you you uh, add little plots of land on which you can grow your crops. And you can choose which crops to grow. Um, you know, each time you plant something, you have several choices to, you know, you could say corn or tomatoes or, you know, p- you know potatoes or something else. Um, and each crop costs a certain amount of money and your, you know, your fake gold money. Right. Actually, it's their, their dollars, I think. Farm um, coins. Farm coins. And, uh, you also, it's been a while since I played. And, uh, each crop takes a certain amount of time to grow. And if you leave the game for more than that amount of time, a reasonable amount of time once it's grown, the crop will wither and die. So the point is too, I mean, it's not just crops. You also add, you know, a fence around your, your garden and you add a farmhouse and what kind do you want and, you know, bales of hay. And you, you basically, you, you, uh, add in size to the farm and you add different plots and you upgrade your stuff. And, and there's also a social factor where you can interact yeah. with your friends' farms and they can interact with yours, which is why you see like all these mm-hmm. notifications pop up on Facebook until you get fed up with it and block them. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you can, visit your friend's farm and fertilize their crops so they grow faster or unwither them when they've yeah, right. gone bad you can, you and can stuff help like them that. Out. Yeah. You can send them gifts and they can send you gifts. And that, that can be kind of fun. But the thing is, it's like Jonathan pointed out, uh, Zynga is really hoping that you'll invest some actual cash into this. And you can get uh, certain kinds of crops or certain kinds of decorations for your farm if you fork over some real coin. Um, and... That's kind of annoying for people like me who are cheap and don't want to give them any money. And the thing is, at a certain point, the game or software toy, is like, like I said, I don't like to call it, is sort of semi-unplayable because there's a point at which everything, to make it fun, you really need to give them money for. Right. And it really doesn't change. And, and there's a point at which you go, yeah, you know, I really don't want to do this anymore. And the game also encourages you to try and 
loop your friends into the game. Well, so, yeah. So yeah, that's that's probably. I'm guessing that's why people voted for it because it feels yeah. almost invasive um, when you're on Facebook, unless you you go so far as to block it. And we had other Facebook games, like games that are similar to this, uh, nominated as well. But Farmville was the one that actually got the most votes. And yeah. um, also, Zynga has been accused of sort of copying. Uh, yes. An earlier game called Farm Town yes. that mm-hmm. had very similar game mechanics. Some people would say similarity to the point of identity, but <laughs> well, this this model has uh, has extended across Facebook and in other venues as well. I mean, there are some iPad games um, that I've you know tried out on my tablet that basically they're the same kinds of things. Add your friends. Otherwise, you're not going to get very far in this game. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I don't know anybody else who's playing this. Plus, I don't want to spam everybody with right. messages Send out an email blast saying, like, join my game. Yeah, I mean, if Jonathan's playing and I'm playing, then yeah, I'll send Jonathan a note. Hey, send me a free chicken. Right. But I don't want to send that to everybody on my list because, you know, it's annoying. Yeah, that'd be foul play. Yes, it would. So let's move on to our next the yolks on me. nomination. Now, this this next nomination is interesting because it's a terrible, terrible game that was designed to be a, a terrible, terrible, terrible game. game. And it's called Desert Bus. Now, Desert Bus was actually a mini game that was part of a larger package of games for a, uh, a product that never saw full production. It was for the Sega CD system. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I barely remember that. The whole system was a failure, not yeah. just this game. Um, but it was a mini game that was included in Penn and Teller's Smoke and Mirrors. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the stuff that was in Penn and Teller's Smoke and Mirrors ended up being used in other Penn and Teller products, like uh, Cruel Tricks for Dear Friends and things like that. Yeah. But this one idea, uh, which supposedly came from Eddie Gorodetsky, who is a, a producer in Hollywood, mm-hmm. uh, this one idea was... To create a, an an ultra realistic and by that I mean boring game in which you drive a bus from Tucson, Arizona to Las Vegas, Nevada in real time, and the bus's top speed is around forty five miles per hour, and there's no scenery, there's there's no traffic, there are no passengers on the bus. It's just you driving this bus to Las Vegas. And uh, in real time, that takes, by the way, about eight hours. And if you get all the way to Las Vegas, you get a point, and then you have to drive back. But but what happens if you need to, you know, stop and eat dinner or go to the bathroom? Uh, well, the game does not have a pause function, so the time would just keep going. I mean, also, the the bus. Uh, you might say, why don't you just set it up so that the bus drives automatically? Like, you know, just put something on the up arrow key. On the gas pedal? Yeah. Uh, Well, the bus also has a problem with its suspension, (laughs) and it pulls to the right. So you have to constantly adjust the bus so that it will be on the road. Now, there is a port of this game on the web. You can play a web-based version of Desert Bus if you want to. Now, you might ask, why would you want to? Well, some of it's just kind of like grousing slash bragging rights that, you know, you actually bothered to take eight hours of your life and get this virtual bus from Tucson to Las Vegas. But uh, another group called Loading Ready Run mm-hmm. had an interesting idea. Um, that's a, a four-person comedy group 
and they decided to hold a desert bus marathon session as a fundraising effort to raise money for the charity Child's Play. Uh, Child's Play is a charity that uh, gets a lot of attention, uh, particularly around Penny Arcade Expo or PAX, because the PAX guys also hold um, uh, auctions for Child's Play. And uh, it's it's providing video games and other kinds of stuff like that to kids who are in hospitals and who are recovering or are suffering from serious illnesses and conditions. It's a, a nice charity to do something nice for the kids, right? Mm-hmm. So these four members of Loading Ready Run took shifts at driving the, uh, the desert bus. Um, they ended up driving for more than four and a half days. <laughs> Mm-hmm. The first time, which was in 2007. Uh, they drove for a, around four and a half days, and they scored six points <laughs> in that four and a half days driving the bus back and forth. Uh, and since then, they've held the marathon several more times and have raised more than $400,000 collectively. That's impressive. Yeah, for Child's Play, which is pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the game is online, so if you just do a search for Desert Bus, you can find a web-based version of this game and play it yourself. Well, we've got more to say about the worst video games of all time, but until then, uh, we're going to have to do a little side quest here. It looks like our princess is in another castle, so we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Apparently, our number six uh, game is also a game for people who are into really not happy driving experiences. Oh, my gosh. This game is probably – it's amazing to me that this game was ever released because it is it is as unfinished a game as I have ever seen. And I've seen the reviews for this game. Like, I've seen video reviews of this game that show the problems. And it's – you can't believe that such a product was ever released to the public. Uh, I guess we should say what it is. Well, racing games are so popular. And, you know, you can race just about anything in in all kinds of video games. So you would imagine that one that would allow you to race tractor trailers would be fun. But big rigs over the road racing for the PC for the PC isn't. Yeah, it was a 2003 third person racing game. So you're outside the truck looking at the truck. Yeah. And sort of, uh, and let's, if you could call it let's see if we can figure out where some of the problems of this game uh, may reside, shall we? Well, it's a racing game in which you don't really race anyone else, right? Well, well, first, the first problem is that it was billed as a game where the object was that you were transporting illegal goods uh, and you were being chased by police. So it was billed as a game where you had to drive fast and evade the cops. What uh, cops? Right. So when you actually get the game, it turns out there's nothing. It has nothing to do with any of that. Instead, it was supposed to be, uh, at least once you got the game going, it was supposed to be a racing game where you're racing against other competitors. But um, the game developer never actually bothered to put artificial intelligence competitors in there, so they they never leave the starting line. It's a race where. All the other people racing don't do anything. They mm-hmm. just sit there. So you're, you're running and, and they're behind you and they don't do anything. Uh, beyond that, though, it gets worse than that. Well, what about the realistic physics? Yeah, there weren't any. Um, you could drive over anything. 
like driving on the road or driving off the road or driving through a building, none of that made any difference. You you traveled at the same speed, unless you were backing up, in which case you would accelerate infinitely <laughs> until you let off the uh, the the reverse button. Yeah, I, I understand. Well, again, I didn't play this one, but I understand too that stopping was hyper realistic too. Like if you had perfect brakes, you just let up on the accelerator and you stop. Yeah, exactly. You just go to go to yeah, a complete stop. Because trucks do that. There, yeah, there's there's no sense of momentum or inertia. Uh, you just the universe would 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 halt around you. Um, you could drive off the edge of the map and into gray nothingness. So it made it kind of a metaphysical philosophical game at that point. I've done that uh, before. And we've known plenty of metaphysical philosophical truck drivers, and that's really not a dig. We really do know quite a few of them. Um, but yeah, it was just, uh, you know, no collision detection to speak of. Uh, uh, there were five tracks listed in the game. Only four of them were playable. I don't know how that would be a disappointment considering how horrible the game was. Like, oh great, you mean I can't play this other terrible track that I would never love? <laughs> and, uh, X plays Morgan Webb. She, she refused to rate this game. <laughs> because X play has a rating system of one to five stars. Mm-hmm. There's no, Zero stars. There's no zero. And she refused to even give it one star, so she would not review it. All right, she then. played it, <laughs> she just wouldn't give it a review. So yeah, that's uh, that's pretty bad. So that was a that was a 2003 game, but we're going to go a little further back for our next one, right? Right, yeah. This is a, a, a port of a very popular arcade game. Um, and for uh, and this is one I've played back so, on when I had an Atari. Well, actually, I still have an Atari 2600. When I had it hooked up to yeah. the TV. But I didn't actually own this one. I did. Um, so shall we clue yeah. people in? Yeah, this is fifth place, by the way, for those of you keeping count. So in fifth place is... Pac-Man. Yeah, Pac-Man. So The port of the Namco Giant. It's often called the worst coin-op port ever. Donkey Kong wasn't great. I know. Not, I don't disagree. <laughs> but... Um, no, but, Pac-Man was, t- honestly, it was terrible. Yeah, at least Donkey Kong remotely resembled the game that it was based that's, on. Yeah, That's true. Pac-Man, some people have said that if it had not been called Pac-Man, if it, if it hadn't been referred to as that and it had a slightly different appearance for the, the, the character that you play, mm-hmm. that people probably wouldn't be quite so hard on it. Because the puzzle, the, the mazes were a little challenging to get through. Mm-hmm. And, it, it, you know, the gameplay worked properly. Like, you know, you'd press left less. on the joystick and Pac-Man would go left. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't like, you know, Big Rigs, what we just talked about, that was a game that was just pure broken. Yeah. Right? There was no, literally no way to play that game. It ended up being like a weird, sandbox game, but it wasn't intended to be one. Mm-hmm. Pac-Man played the way it was supposed to, more or less. It's just that it was such a poor translation of what of a game that people were really familiar with that it was it could be nothing more than a disappointment to anyone who bought it. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Pac-Man is one of the titles that people often will use as an example when they talk about why the video game industry collapsed in 1983 in North America. Well, they made so many copies of this, anticipating that people would want to play it at home, but when they actually got their hands on it and moved... I mean, Pac-Man is a game where you actually need reflexes and you need to pay attention to what's going on, and Pac-Man on the 2600 moved so much more slowly, Mm -hmm. and the graphics were poor. The sound wasn't as good. I remember when it, uh, it came out for the Atari 5200, and it looked so much better, except the 5200 has a non-centering joystick, which makes playing in a four-direction maze very, very difficult. So yeah. that just didn't 
help anything. It was just it was such a huge flop at home. Right. Yeah. It was. It was a terrible, terrible game, and uh, I completely agree with this being on on a list for, for oh, yeah. bad video games because yeah. it. You know, even if you even if you say that the gameplay was okay, the effect it had on the industry was so terrible that. By definition, it's a bad video game because it helped bring the industry to its knees in 1983. And it, it, it wouldn't be until Nintendo launched the NES in North America that we would see a recovery of that market. Meh. Um, so now next we have a tie for third place. You know, Normally we go from fifth to fourth, but we have uh, the same number of votes came in for our, our third and fourth place. So tie for third. And these two are more modern. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we, we we did an entire episode about one of these. Duke Nukem Forever. Oh, yeah. Now, we did do a full episode about Duke Nukem Forever, so we're not going to spend too much time right now talking about it. Because, uh, no, granted, when we did the episode, it was before the game had come out. Hotly anticipated for a decade. More than a decade. Uh, yeah, it was rounding off. Yeah, it was originally announced as a title for the PC. It was a a, a sequel to Duke Nukem 3D. Um, it was originally announced in 1997, but it didn't launch until 2011. Yeah, that's a long time for to wait for a video game, right? I mean, it got vaporware awards right up there with Deus Ex. Yeah, Wired gave it the vaporware of the year award. Multiple years in a row. In fact, it it got discontinued from the voting because... And then it was brought back. Because it wasn't just that it was vaporware. It was that just when you were prepared to say Duke Nukem Forever was never going to come out, there would be some sort of rumble from 3D Realms that would say, no, 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 it's really going to come out. And then you'd have to say, well, now we have to put it back on the list because... You know, we were yeah. ready to write it off forever, but they say it's coming out. So, of course, they, the rights to the game passed into other people's hands. Yeah, and they once, said, we'll once do 3D it. Realms collapsed, yeah. And um, they did. Yeah, they, they finished it. Um, hmm. They did not receive wide acclaim when it launched. A lot of people panned this game, which, of course, explains why it, it's on our list and how many people voted for it. Um a lot of the criticisms about the game said that it was it just looked dated. It was it was like a first person shooter designed for the late nineties. You know, it, it didn't have the elements that you expect in a first person shooter today. Right. And uh that even even for one in the nineties it wouldn't have been great because like in the nineties you would have a lot of fast paced action and you would have a ton of different weapons at your disposal. Right. Duke Nukem Forever was more plodding and uh um well, I, there's no way for me to word this in a way that's not negative. It was a slow, slow game. It could be boring at times. It could be ages between one encounter with an enemy and another. And you could only carry two weapons at a time. So it took away some of the stuff that made those games in the 90s so much fun and uh, and didn't replace it with anything better. And also, the juvenile humor in the Duke Nukem series, I think it may have worn a little thin. It's just people don't find it as amusing mm -hmm. as it used to be, mm -hmm. partially because we've had other games come out that have much more biting satire and uh, and, you know, they're they're just as edgy as Duke Nukem was, but they are more relevant. Mm -hmm. Like the Grand Theft Auto series is known for its dark humor. The Fallout 3 series or the Fallout series in general is known for its dark humor. Mm -hmm. And so you get to Duke Nukem and you're just like, well, this feels like. You're in a, uh, you know, uh, you're in a, a locker room with a bunch of uh, really, really immature 
guys mm-hmm. and that that's the level of humor and it just never gets above that. And so I think all of those things contributed to it being ranked on our list. Mm-hmm. But what about our next game that's also tied for third place? Well, you'd think that a game written by um, an Oxford professor of bioethics might actually rank up there. But uh, Bennett Foddy's game, QWOP, or Quop, um, got a lot of negative votes. I actually saw this profiled in Wired before I ever tried to play it. Yeah. Um, there's a neat little article about him, uh, and I do mean little. It's very short. Um, but basically, in this game, you are using the keys QWOP, hence the name, to move the legs of a runner on a track. Yeah, a runner named Quop mm-hmm. for a 100-meter dash. And that's, that's important to know. It's, an, it's supposed to be an Olympic runner on the 100-meter dash, and the Q and W keys control the runner's thighs, mm-hmm. and the O and P keys control the runner's calves. And you're supposed to try and coordinate these movements in such a way as to propel the runner down the 100 meters. By the way, this runner has apparently no upper body control whatsoever. <laughs> and if, if the runner gets even a little bit off balance, it's time to tip over. And, and I have seen so many people play this game and get negative <laughs> scores because they would just start tipping backwards almost instantaneously. And as soon as you touch the ground, that's where your, that's, that's your score. Yeah. And, uh, and keep in mind, it's a 100-meter dash. Um, I've never seen anyone complete this in fewer than 20 minutes. But um, uh, the furthest I've gotten is 12.8 meters. Didn't you send me a video of somebody who'd finished it in about four minutes? I think they sped it up. Oh, what, okay. they, what they ended up doing was they used it so that they made Quop do a split. Mm-hmm. And then they just kind of jimmied it <laughs> until he finally – like he literally inched down a hundred meters and and at fifty meters by the way you are you are you encounter your first obstacle, a mm-hmm. hurdle, <laughs> and at a hundred meters there's a long jump, but you can go through the hurdle like you don't have to you don't have to actually jump the hurdle you can keep That's going good. As, as long as you're able to land on your feet or however you're getting across um you can you can pretty much ignore the hurdle and the long jump is completely uh um optional. Yeah, so if you just have to cross that finish line. If your if your experience with video game uh, running is track and field from the 1980s, yeah. where you just had to pound buttons as fast as you could, um, you will not win at this game. No, this game is this game is really, really, really hard, which I think is why it got a lot of votes. It's it's frustrating, and it seems. It seems after you've played it for about a minute, it seems completely pointless. Oh, we should say it's web-based. Yeah. It's a web-based game, so you can find it on Foddy's site. He he wrote this in 2008, and it's still up. So if you want to give it a shot... Uh, go ahead. It's it's kind of and it, it's kind of fun and it also gives you an idea of how well your brain is controlling your walking movements because if you were trying to walk with your you know you control your own legs with your fingers you yeah. may, I don't know that I would do yeah, any better it, but it takes a lot of coordination to yeah. be able to like even when I got twelve point eight meters it was mostly luck yeah I was timing it just right but. Even as I was playing, I was like, ooh, I should have, I should have let up on the calf muscle and continued on the thigh muscle for a split second longer and I would have been able to get a little yeah. further. I can never do that when I'm actually playing. Like when yeah. I'm actually playing, I'm like, press these two buttons, now switch to these two buttons, now switch back to those two buttons. And that's, that's my tactic. That's probably why I've only gotten 12.8 meters in. Maybe you should get onto a GURP. Oh yeah, I've played that one too. Which is this mountain climbing game and apparently it's very, very similar. It's actually that one I can play really well. I've gotten pretty far in GURP. 
Um, uh, that one makes more sense to me. Mm-hmm. I, I've got better coordination with that one. But the uh, but yeah, Quop is really hard. So um, you know who's really good at controlling their legs? Who's that? But someone who doesn't have to use them. Is this going into our second place? Yes, because I mean, you know, if you can fly, yeah, then why would you need to use your legs? Yes, I'm talking about our second place, Superman: The New Superman Adventures. Yeah, also known as Superman sixty four. Yeah, that was Nintendo sixty four. It wasn't its official name, right? It's good that it wasn't Superman: The New Batman Adventures. That That would would be really confusing. Yeah. Or, like, Superman, Not My Little Pony. That, that would have been weird. That it <laughs> Might have been a better game then, though. Yeah. Uh, this was released in 1999 for the Nintendo 64. And probably shouldn't have been. And again, this we're talking about a licensed character. You know, we talked about with Back to the Future. They're, we're going to make some money. The history of licensed characters, actually, we're going to get to that again very shortly. The history of licensed characters in video games is a pretty ugly one. There are a few games that stand out as being... Remarkable, like truly good games that use licensed characters. But the general rule of thumb is that if it's a licensed character game, it's it, it's got a good the, the odds are against it, right? Just based on the number of bad games that use licensed characters. Now there are other games like you know Arkham Asylum, which are fun. I mean that's a Batman game and that's a lot of fun. Oh, I thought you were going to bring up uh, Goldeneye. Goldeneye. Fantastic. One of the best games ever made. Also made for the Nintendo 64. One of the top first-person shooter games uh, of that era. Fantastic game. Superman? No. Not so much. Uh, So the story behind this game, the actual story in the game, that is, is that you play the part of Superman, Mm -hmm. who has been tricked, as he often is, by Lex Luthor to enter into a virtual representation of Metropolis. And you have to complete these different tasks and puzzles that Lex sets up for you in order to escape and beat the tar out of him. Tank, I need an exit. Yeah. So the first test of your skills involves flying through a series of hoops because Superman often has to that's, do that. Yeah, I I remember his that's a challenge. epic battle with Doomsday, where he had to fly through about fourteen hoops before. Def- no, that doesn't make any sense. And I jump through hoops every day. After that, you would might have to pick up a car and throw it because again, that's what Superman would do in Metropolis. Is that you know you're thinking like you're driving down with your family, you're having a nice day out, you might be going to go see the Metropolis Museum of Art, and the mm-hmm. next thing you know, some jerk has just flown over, picked up your car, and thrown it forty blocks. Yep. Yeah, that's that'll ruin your whole day. <laughs> but anyway, so you would also have to do things like fight famous Superman villains, but the controls were really sluggish. The gameplay was incredibly repetitive. And it has been ranked as one of the worst video games of all time, not just by our listeners, but by other publications. I mean, it has multiple, I hesitate to use the word awards, but multiple notifications of it being the worst, one of the worst video games. And in fact, in one uh, ranking I saw, it was ranked as the number one, and our number one was number two. Hey, we are almost through with our episode about the worst video games of all time. Hope you're enjoying it, but... Before we conclude, let's take another quick break. So now I guess we should move on to what our listeners have voted. And I'm sure you've already guessed it based upon what has already been listed. But what our listeners have voted as the worst video game of all time. And I should point out 
This received 29% of the overall votes we received. And keep in mind, you could nominate any title at all. And and I, I'm... I have a a small concern that because we've mentioned it as a terrible game that that you all thought that we were coaching you to vote for this title. Yeah, we did. We have talked about this game being a terrible game before, but when when we actually asked for votes, I made sure we didn't mention any particular title. Yeah. I didn't want to change anyone's mind or put in a suggestion. I'm sure that happened anyway, uh based upon some of the co- comments and everything, but our worst video game is of all time Chris do the honors. E.T., the extraterrestrial for the Atari 2600. A 1982 game published by Atari. In about 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so keep in mind that Atari went the route where they were allowing all sorts of developers to create games for the Atari 2600. It didn't have to be vetted through Atari. You yeah, know, it's Nintendo, not like a Nintendo does. Right. Yeah. Nintendo had Sorry. the whole certification process. Mm-hmm. Atari did not. But this, there's no excuse here, because Atari was the publisher behind this game in the first place. Yes. Uh, yeah, so in this game, you take the role of E.T., the mm-hmm. extraterrestrial from the beloved Steven Spielberg documentary of the same name. And um, your task was to locate three pieces of an interstellar telephone so that you could uh, assemble oh. them mm-hmm. and phone home which would summon a spaceship that would rescue you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you did this just like in the movie. I mean, we all remember that scene in the movie where E.T. had to walk into a field of pits, raise his head up, look for the flash, and descend into the pit to retrieve a piece of the interstellar phone. I mean, you remember that scene, right? It's probably, no. no, that scene did not exist. But in the game, you would walk into one of the screens, actually a couple of the screens, would have several pits on the screen, you push a button, which would, pits. which would raise E.T.'s head, and he would do a, a, a sound like this. <laughs> and then, one, <laughs> if you were lucky, one of the pits would flash, which would indicate that one of the pieces of the phone was in that pit. And you would walk over to the pit, fall in, mm-hmm. pick up the piece of phone, and then you would press the button, which would raise E.T.'s head. <laughs> And you would levitate up the pit. Now, most of the game is an overhead view, but when you were in a pit, it was a side view, like a cutout yes. view. Mm-hmm. And you would you would levitate to the top of the pit and then immediately fall in again. Because it was really hard that once you got to the top of the pit, it, the, the screen would change so that you were looking at the overhead view again. Yep. And you had to manipulate E.T. All over to the edge of the pit so that you were on the ground again. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're on, you go from a side view to an overhead view. And I can't tell you how many times I fell down a pit over and over and over again because I thought I was clear. But And every time you fall and every time you use your powers, you use up energy. You have a limited amount of energy. And after you use it all up, you die. Yeah. Well, you have to find dots. I mean, Reese's Pieces. Reese's Pieces, yeah. The little square pixel, which would be re- represent one Reese's Pieces. And you would uh, eat that and that would give you a little more energy. They would also had doctors who would walk around. And if they found you, they'd pick you up and move you to a different screen and you would lose a little time. Or worse, you would find an FBI guy and he would chase you down. And if he touched you, he would take away your phone and you had to start over again. <laughs> And so you would do this over and over again until you had the three pieces of phone. Then you could go to one part of the the game, the one section where there's an icon on the screen that tells you you can make your phone call here. And you had to find it because it wasn't always in the same place. 
you would make your phone call, and then you had to make it to a different screen where the spaceship would actually land, because apparently you can't make a phone call at the landing site. Oh no, that'd be too easy. So then you had to make your way to the other screen and get in the, the little spaceship, and you would then start the game over at the same difficulty level immediately. And this so. game was awful. Terrible, terrible game. So bad that people, the word got out about how disappointing this game was that people stopped buying it. And uh, Atari had produced thousands of cartridges because the movie was so successful. Yep. So Atari goes out and makes thousands and thousands of copies of E.T. The reviews come in. People hate it. Copies go unsold. Eventually, stores start to send their unsold copies of E.T. back to Atari, and Atari grinds them up and then trucks them out into New Mexico and buries them. You know um, you know what they did with that? What's that? They used it to pave a road, and then you drive this bus yeah, right. across the desert. And you get one point every time you run over E.T. Exactly. Yeah, it was um and then you fall in a pit. And then yeah. <laughs> and physics in that game are terrible. But anyway, yeah, so that was this was again just like Pac-Man. This is another one of those games that was pointed to as being one of the reasons the video game industry crashed in 1983. Now, you know, a lot of the games that came out for the Atari 2600 were these games made by independent developers that were just terrible. Yeah. But it was because, you know, the market was flooded with terrible games, and Atari was not helping itself out by publishing some of them itself. Yeah, I, I had some of those games, too. Yeah. And I had, and you know, I've mentioned it before, I was actually surprised that nobody voted for the Sword Quest series, but my guess is that Atari was in such decline that none of our listeners actually bought that but me. Yeah. Since they didn't even finish the last game. Uh, on the series, but uh, we didn't. Uh, a couple people did vote for some games that were patently offensive. Uh, we yeah. didn't mention that before, and, right. and we didn't. We weren't including those sp- specifically because we were talking about games that were just horrible games, not yeah, they games were, that were offensive. Yeah, games. these were games that were meant to be enjoyable. They 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 didn't have an ulterior motive, right? Right. Th- there those, are some of those too, but yeah, the games that had an ulterior motive, where the whole par- purpose was to perpetuate hatred or to make a joke out of uh, inhumane acts, mm-hmm. we didn't include those because, really, I mean, uh, first of all, I refuse to give them any more publicity than they've already had. Right. And second of all, I I was. The spirit of the thing was to think of games that were meant to be enjoyable, fun games that just weren't for yeah. one reason or another. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about some of the – really quickly because we're, we're already Over. getting pretty far up there. But we have to talk about some of the other games that got on uh, got some votes that I was surprised didn't get more votes. But again, since you had every single game open to you, mm-hmm. you know, one of those was Aquaman Battle for Atlantis. <laughs> This game is nigh unplayable. It, again, had one of the worst reviews ever. X-Play did an amazing, hysterical review of this game. Um, I think they called it, like, Power of the Mullet or something like that in their in their review. But it was terrible. Mm. And games that um, were specifically designed to be marketing tools for, for brands. Mm-hmm. So stuff like 
I actually had the Kool-Aid game for the Atari 2600. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. And then they had uh, the Avoid the Noid game for Domino's. Yes. There were all the Burger King games that came out for the Xbox. Yeah. Uh, There was a McDonald's game as well. We got got votes for those, but they were... It was usually like one, or one two. yeah, like one vote for one of those titles. So there wasn't a lot of, but I think that that deserves mention. Games that are specifically just marketing ploys tend to get hate on, hated by gamers. Yeah, which you know that kind of makes sense. Like gamers want a game that was designed just to create enjoyment, be fun and challenging, not a game that's designed to make you want to go out and buy a pizza. Teenage Mutant mm. Ninja Turtles also falls into that category. Pizza. No, I'm just kidding. So, and then there were some of the games that were on the list that we we were a little surprised to see votes for. Yeah. Uh, and in some cases, I think it's vo- people were voting on games that either they're just tired of seeing, or they don't they are not particularly good at that game and they find it frustrating and and other people like it and that's why they hate it because mm-hmm. it's a game that they personally just don't get. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of those titles include things like Angry Birds, which yeah. I think probably that's a saturation thing, right? It's just because it's everywhere. People are going to be tired of it. Well, I think that was Farmville, too. Yeah. Uh, we Fit. We Fit. I don't even think of We Fit as a game. Yeah, not you really. Know, so that's why I didn't really like that. That's not really a game so much. I mean, there's a game element to it, but it's yes. not. I don't call it a game. Uh, Halo which I think a lot of people would argue is one of the better first-person shooters for a console system, keeping in mind that PC-based first-person shooters are much more sophisticated and require a totally different skill set than a console one. I've heard computer first-person shooter players refer to console first-person shooters as kind of dumbing down the whole thing. And I kind of get that, but it's, it's a different, you know, a kind of different mode, and I personally love the Halo series. I can see your Halo. Thank you. Uh, Pitfall for the Atari 2600. Yeah. That was a classic title. Mm -hmm. Like that along with River Raid are two of my favorite Atari 2600 titles. But there were people who didn't like it because it had repetitive gameplay. Activision's early days there. Um, Super Mario 64, another game that got great reviews. I remember Uh, that being But we got some votes for that. Uh, Microsoft Combat Flight Simulator, which again, I don't really think of as a game. It's a flight simulator. And flight simulators by their very nature tend to be very very complex and sometimes overwhelmingly so mm-hmm. because they are trying to be so true to life and yet you're using a different interface to control that vehicle than you would if you were in the cockpit. Mm-hmm. So there's an extra layer, layer of complexity, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So that got the votes. Also, we got some votes for Call of Duty and Modern Warfare, which mm. that was kind of interesting. Um, so not everybody agrees, obviously, on what is the worst game of all time, although overwhelmingly E.T. ran away with this. Yeah. Like, the, it, the, it was, it wasn't even close. Mm-hmm. <laughs> E.T. had way more votes than all the others combined. Wow. Um, but, uh, like I said, 29% of all the votes that we received for everything went to E.T. He galloped everywhere he walked. Did you? Yes, it's true. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Did you have any game? Well, you mentioned the, what was it? The, the Sword, Sword Quest, Quest series. That was, that was that a pretty could, bad one. There was supposed to be a contest. Yeah. If you solved all four parts of it. The fourth part never came out, and the third one got limited distribution. But I couldn't see the point of doing what you were supposed to be doing. Right. It, I mean, I just really couldn't follow the, the sequence. Yeah, I think I have to say that out of all the ones I've I've mentioned, E.T. is probably the, the one I think of as the worst that I've ever personally played. Mm-hmm. I've played a lot of really bad games, but I tend to forget them because 
I have access to more games now. So if I play a really bad one, I just switch and go to a good one. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't leave as big an impression on me. Back when I was a kid, my options were somewhat limited. And so I would play a bad game over and over because it's what I had. Ah, uh, you poor thing. I know. Here I am complaining about video games. Oh, poor me. I have to play a game. <laughs> um, yeah, don't cry for me, Argentina. Did you enjoy? That was what I told you to do. So yeah, that was our episode on the worst video games of all time. You guys pick some doozies. Mm-hmm. Maybe someday we'll do another like follow-up to that, because of course, there have been lots of video games released since 2011. Certainly. And some of you may have very strong opinions, like, wait, there was this other game that was even worse than all the ones you mentioned, and you didn't even talk about it. So uh, we might try it again. I-, I said at the time, maybe we'll do a more concentrated approach, because when you leave it wide open, you get, you know, 500 people responding, and 100 of them all give a vote for an obscure title, but that's one vote per per obscure title, so they don't amount to anything. (laughs) So we'll figure something out. But we want to talk a little bit about some of the worst video games we've ever played. So, Lauren, uh, you know, since you weren't available to talk about the worst video games of all time, did you have any that you wanted to add to the discussion? Uh, yeah. OK, so so there were two that I've played personally that stand out in my mind as being particularly terrible. Um, the first is Back to the Future Parts 2 and 3 mm. for the NES. That's the original Nintendo Entertainment System. Yeah. Um, and and oh, OK, both of the things that I'm going to mention are. Uh, film or otherwise, you know, other media titles that have been ported Licensed over. Licensed over for yeah, video yeah. game. Yeah. Which is never really a recipe for... Yeah, there's only a few examples of ones like Batman Arkham Asylum. Like, that's an example of a great licensed game. But sure. there's so few of those. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, okay, so, so this one was developed by Beam Software and released by LJN in 1990. It was rated unforgiving in Game Facts. Um, yeah. it, was, it was just basically impossible to play. The music was terrible. The graphics were terrible. There were some parts of it that were just... Just meaningless. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the other one? The other one is the X-Files game. Uh, that's for the PC and or the PS1 or PSX. Uh, that wow. Was... Yeah, I remember seeing video reviews of that. I never played it myself. I want to hear more about your experience <laughs> here. All right, so so this one was developed by, um, and I think this is how you pronounce it, Hyperbole Studios. Oh, not hyperbole. But not hyperbole. Yeah, hyperbole. Okay, that's how it's spelled. Um, it was released by Fox Interactive. Makes sense. Uh, yeah. You know, 20th Century Fox is doing the X Files in '98 and or '99, depending on which system you bought it for. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was largely an FMV, uh, a full. <sighs> Full motion, vo- motion video. Yeah. yeah. And and it wasn't even starring Mulder and Scully is the problem, like because the actors were busy, you know, doing their TV show. So they had to get this other dude to kind of interact very occasionally with Mulder and Scully. And the puzzles were just terrible. Like it, it wasn't it wasn't thought out very well in terms of game design. Like I think the first puzzle in the game was you sit down at your office be, being you being this uh, this this other agent character mm-hmm. And the first thing you have to figure out is what your computer password is. <laughs> As though you wouldn't know what your own computer... I mean, actually, to be fair, I guess I forget my own passwords about once a week. But that's but- still... that's. I mean, how you can't be more secure, right? <laughs> like, you know, you're, you know your system's secure when even you are not aware of what your passwords are. 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to think of any others I wanted to add because, again, we recorded that first episode back in 2011 and, you know, I've played games since then. But here's the thing is that the way I tend to play games these days, uh, I tend to buy them well after they've had their initial run simply because I don't have a whole lot of time on my hands. So I'm often playing a game that came out, you know, a year earlier or, le- or somewhere around that time mm-hmm. uh, still while other games are coming out. And because I haven't finished that game, I don't just immediately jump on the other. So like Skyrim, I didn't get that till almost a year after it had come out, maybe maybe seven or eight months. And people have perhaps vetted the fact that it's worth your while by the time you purchase and it. Yeah, by that time, people have played it. I've seen reviews. I've heard buzz about it, and I've decided whether or not it's for me. It's very rare when I'll go out and get a game like the day it comes out. One of the examples of one where I did do that was uh, Grand Theft Auto V, and... I wouldn't call it the worst game of all time or anything close to that. The actual single-player experience is pretty phenomenal. Mm-hmm. If you like those kind of games. If you don't like those kind of games, obviously, then obviously it's, yeah, it's, you're not yeah, going to enjoy your it. Thing, but. but I really enjoyed the game. I enjoyed the story. I liked the characters. Uh, I, I, I didn't think it was necessarily groundbreaking. It wasn't nearly as dark as Grand Theft Auto 4 was, but uh, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, but the online part, which was released two weeks after the game came out... Mm-hmm. You know, they had a lot of uh, promises of what was going to come. And some of those promises, as of the recording of this podcast, have yet to be delivered upon. Like being able to do heists in multiplayer. Heists in the single player game were fantastic. Mm -hmm. They were uh, you had to coordinate between three different characters. You could swap between the characters during the heist. Each one's doing something specific. That's cool. Really kind of complicated stuff. Like you could actually determine which of two pathways you would want to take, whether you wanted to go the subtle route or just... Kick the doors open. Guns and, yeah, blazing. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it was really a fun, dynamic thing in the single-player game. So everyone's really looking forward to it, but it hasn't come out for multiplayer, again, as of the recording of this podcast. And that has been a pretty big disappointment. So the single-player fantastic multiplayer uh, was one of those things where people got tired of it. I, in fact, I don't know how many people are still playing multiplayer. I know there are, but I don't know how many of them there are because a lot of people just got they were able to do everything you could do. Yeah. And they're like, well, I it's more just a gap between the, the, the promise and the follow through. Yeah. That kind of situation. Yeah. And it was it was because it was really an ambitious project and it just didn't quite live up to it when it launched. Not to say that they won't eventually get there. I just wonder how big a population they'll have once they finally do. But yeah, I don't have sadly don't have a whole lot of stories about terrible video games I've played. I mean, even some I don't of know, the, that's not really sad. That's that's kind of OK. Yeah. That wraps up that classic episode of the worst video games of all time. Something to always keep in mind is that pretty much every case, no matter how bad a video game might turn out to be, we should remember, typically there are people who are working very hard on those games. And sometimes stuff just doesn't work out for any number of reasons. But that doesn't mean that those people who were working on it were in the wrong or weren't skilled Sometimes stuff just doesn't go well. And uh, I I wanted to put that out there because a lot of the times when I talk about like the worst of all time stuff, uh, it sounds like I'm slagging off on the people who are responsible for it. But that's not always, you know, merited. Sometimes it is if people are like running a scam or something. But in the case where people are genuinely setting out to do something and they just fall short, I feel like we should give them a little compassion. So just reminding myself as well as you nice folks out there that compassion can go a long way. 
Well, speaking of compassion, if you feel like that there's an episode I should be covering, you know, maybe there's an update I need to do. Maybe there's a technology you want to know more about. You should reach out to me, but nicely over on Twitter. The handle I use is techstuffhsw. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 